Aphrodite, a humorous Regency novel by D.G. Rampton, Chapter 21. A few minutes before eight o'clock on the evening of the dinner party, Lord Paisley showed himself into the Hartwood ladies' drawing room, illuminated for the occasion with dozens of candles placed in candelabras collected from every corner and dusty cupboard in the house and polished into brilliance. Good evening, my love, April, he greeted them in a hearty voice. Lady Hartwood peered behind him as he leant in to kiss her cheek. Where is Slayton, dearest? she asked. Why did he not announce you? You must not blame your man. I told him there was no need for him to accompany me upstairs when his time would be better spent greeting the other guests. He does not appear to be faring well with the steep stairs in this house. Oh, Albert, how like you to think of others. Poor Leighton, I should have pensioned him off long ago, but every time I make even the smallest hint that he may be more comfortable enjoying his remaining years in retirement, he asks me if I'm unhappy with his service, and with such a wounded expression. I never know what to say except to assure him that no other butler could ever be his equal in our esteem. Which is indeed true, only there is no denying someone younger would be more suited to the role. He has served our family a long time, said April. I don't believe he can imagine any other life. It would be cruel to take his duties away from him, but we do try to ease them. Unfortunately, that's not so easily done in London. I don't imagine it is, said Lord Paisley, grinning slyly at her. The poor man must be answering the door morning, noon and night. There are certainly more people in London than in St. Moore's, so it's only natural we should have more visitors, April replied, refusing to take the bait. Suitors is what I'm referring to, not visitors, he teased. How many marriage proposals have you earned for yourself so far? Three? Four? Really, Albert, a lady does not discuss such things. Well, let me tell you, my dear, your suitors don't have the same scruples. They seem to view me as the closest thing to a father to you, and I've been accosted twice already this week by striplings eager to declare themselves. Oh, I'm sorry you were imposed upon, she cried, greatly vexed. Was it Mr. Hall and Lord Wyndham? I shall certainly give them a piece of my mind when I next see them. No need to get worked up, my dear, chuckled Lord Paisley. Can't blame the boys for trying. It would certainly have been preferable if young Hall hadn't cornered me in whites before I'd even sat down to my dinner, but there was no harm done, and Wyndham was good enough to make an appointment to see me. He laughed again at her look of consternation. In case you're wondering, I told them you're of age and mistress of your own destiny, and that they must pay their addresses directly to you. Thank you she said tightly. I promise you I haven't given them the least indication that I would welcome their declarations. Of course you haven't, love, said Lady Hartwood, but you know theirs won't be the last marriage proposals you receive while in town. You shouldn't allow yourself to be so angered by them. Back home you had a wonderful way of declining offers without causing the least offence. April was surprised to realise her mother was correct. She did feel angered, and with unwelcome clarity, she recognised the reason for it. Every marriage proposal she would receive from now on would be tainted by the one that would never come. Determined to change the subject, she exclaimed, Why, Albert, I have never seen you look more dashing. That coat fits you to perfection. Yes, you are looking very fine, dearest, agreed Lady Hartwood. But 
Am I mistaken, or have you lost more weight? She asked with a worried frown. A little, he replied sheepishly. Does it please you? Oh, Albert, I hope you know I do not expect you to alter yourself in any way. None at all. I know that, my love, but there's no denying it was high time I looked to my health. I want to live a great many more years now I am to have you as my wife. Lady Hartwood was not immune to this reasoning, so highly flattering to herself, and allowed him to draw her into his arms and kiss her in a way that made her tremble inside. April discreetly looked away and turned her attention to smoothing out the skirt of her dress. Out of the several new outfits at her disposal, she had chosen a sleeveless midnight blue silk underdress over which she wore a close-fitting silver net dress that was gathered in attractive ruffles around the neck and wrists and embroidered with small silver flecks. The effect was enchanting, and when coupled with her striking looks, it was unsurprising that when Hugh and the Starlings were shown into the room a few minutes later, their eyes were inclined to linger on her. Hugh was the first to look away and proceeded to introduce Mrs. Starling to her ladyship. "'Mrs. Starling, I am delighted to be finally making your acquaintance,' declared Lady Hartwood, giving not the slightest indication that this particular guest had been thrust upon her. Offering her hostess a thin smile and her gloved fingers to shake, Mrs. Starling said in a lifeless voice, "'Likewise, enchanted, so good of you to invite me to your lovely home.' She was a small-boned woman, with a pale, withered kind of beauty, and her impassive demeanour, which she equated with good breeding, was the work of many years' training. Returning her gaze to April, she continued placidly, I can see the reports of your daughter's beauty were not exaggerated, most unusual, exquisite in fact. April correctly took this as a greeting of sorts, and dropped into a curtsy. How kind of you to say so, said Lady Hartwood. I count myself amazingly fortunate to have such a daughter. Her good humour and kindness are the greatest comfort to me. April smiled her thanks. Her mother was always the first to draw people's attention away from her looks and to her other qualities. I too am fortunate in my daughter, declared Mrs. Starling. I cannot tell you the number of times others have praised her sweetness of disposition and loveliness to me. She is to be married soon, as you know. She paused to allow her hostess to feel the weight of this superior trait. And I do not know how I am to part with her. Well, we can only hope you will not be called upon to part with her too soon, remarked Lady Hartwood. Then, feeling the need to atone for succumbing to her inner devil, she went on quickly, I am so happy to see you are fully recovered from your indisposition and could join us this evening. Thank you, but my recovery is not complete. It will always be my burden to not enjoy good health. Oh, why, you are the picture of health, exclaimed Lady Hartwood. An illusion, responded Mrs. Starling, rejecting such an optimistic view. I did not feel at all strong enough to leave the house tonight, and in such a horrible, chilling wind... But as a mother, you will understand, we must exert ourselves for the good of our children, even if we know with a certainty it will be detrimental to our constitution. Oh, I am sorry to hear that, said her ladyship, daunted at last. Won't you come and sit by the fire? I can have a posset brood for you if it will make you more comfortable. Is there a particular recipe you prefer? 
Perhaps a few moments by the fire will revive me, but there is no need at all to go to the trouble of brewing a posset. I do not wish to be a bother. A warm glass of negus is all I require. I have found it suits me best. But if it is too great an imposition, pray do not trouble yourself. I will be perfectly content with any other beverage. Her ladyship assured her it was no trouble at all, and after throwing Lord Paisley a pleading look to see to ordering this concoction of heated port, sugar and spices, she escorted the steadfast invalid to a chair by the fire. April saw exasperation in Hugh's countenance and struggled to suppress her smile. It was hard to imagine a man of his temperament with such a mother-in-law. Catching her twinkling gaze on him, Hugh turned away before he could validate her amusement with his own smile. "'As you can see, Miss Hartwood, my mother does not enjoy the best of health,' said Miss Starling, some natural embarrassment creeping into her voice. "'However, she would not allow her frailty to deter her from coming tonight.' "'We are most obliged to her,' replied April, suitably straight-faced. The next group to arrive, soon after, consisted of the Duke of Clarendon, his mother, and Mrs and Miss Beechcroft. Lady Hartwood had previously met the Beechcrofts at Mrs Jameson's soiree, but April had been elsewhere in the room at the time and was meeting them now for the first time. As her mother had suggested, Miss Beechcroft was a diamond in the first water. Whereas April was dark-haired and the sum of her features were striking, almost exotic, Miss Beechcroft was a fair beauty and her lovely plump countenance was quintessentially English. Both her liveliness and her ample assets were on display for the evening and she showed herself to be most ready to enjoy herself while leaving one with the impression that she was used to finding herself in grander company. Mrs Beechcroft, in marked contrast to her daughter, was a plain and lacklustre woman and her unmistakably costly attire in no way hinted that she was blessed with good taste. And it was soon discovered that her personality did nothing to ameliorate these disadvantages. The forceful way in which she set out to question April and Lady Hartwood on their family pedigree, while drawing the Duke's and Duchess's attention to any perceived discrepancies, soon alienated at least half of her audience. Had Lord Paisley been near enough to overhear, he would have put a stop to her impudence. However, after the initial greetings had been exchanged, he had felt duty-bound to take up the position Lady Hartwood had vacated beside Mrs Starling and engage the woman in conversation while she drank her negus. It appears we are unable to convince you, April declared after enduring several minutes of Mrs Beechcroft's inquisition. Nonetheless, it is a fact easily checked that the barony of Hartwood did not die out with my father. It was created by writ, and the remainders of baronies by writ are not limited to male heirs. She had not meant to reveal as much, but the woman had to be silenced. That is indeed true, declared the Duchess grandly, looking around the assembled group. My own dear friend, the Baroness of Highcliffe, came into the title when there were no male heirs left to inherit. It, too, had been created by writ. I believe it is a most sensible solution to a problem that could otherwise decimate the ranks of the nobility. How right you are, Your Grace, enthused Miss Starling. Personally, said Miss Beechcroft, her smile fixed on the Duke, I wouldn't know what to do with the title in my own right. My delicate shoulders could not bear the weight of all those responsibilities. 
A man is better suited to such a task. Wouldn't you agree, Your Grace? On occasion, perhaps, he replied diplomatically. However, I do not believe there is anything in the female temperament to preclude a woman from succeeding in such a duty. I have little doubt Miss Hartwood will rise to the occasion. A baroness in your own right? Mrs. Beechcroft addressed April in an accusing tone, clearly affronted by the thought. But then why continue to call yourself Miss Hartwood? I have not yet claimed the title, replied April, the muscles around her mouth straining to maintain her smile. Mrs. Beechcroft, you are still without a refreshment, Hugh interjected. Allow me to recommend the Madeira. It's a particularly fine vintage. Or perhaps a glass of ratafia. This flattering attention to her comfort by one of the Ton's wealthiest members greatly pleased Mrs. Beechcroft's sense of entitlement. Thank you, Mr. Royce. I will try a little of the Madeira, since it comes with your recommendation. Her Grace also acknowledged herself happy to partake of the Madeira, and once the drinks had been procured, Hugh steered both matrons to take up seats beside Mrs. Starling and Lord Paisley. While Hugh was engaged in removing Mrs. Beechcroft from April's vicinity, Miss Beechcroft took the opportunity to turn her vivacity on Lady Hartwood. "'What a cosy drawing-room you have here, Your Ladyship,' she announced. "'Charming beyond words. I have heard frightful complaints about London houses for hire, but no one could ever call such pleasant furnishings shabby. And the curtains so remind me of my childhood.' We had very similar curtains at Chatley, oh, a dozen or so years ago, when that style of brocade was quite the height of fashion. You must be delighted to have secured such homely accommodation. We are indeed, agreed Lady Hartwood, unable to recognise the subtle condescension. And we have Mr Royce to thank. This house is one of his properties, you know, and we consider ourselves most fortunate to be staying here. She offered Hugh a grateful smile as he rejoined their group. Miss Beechcroft was momentarily thrown off course and laughed a little uncertainly. Oh, this is your house, Mr. Royce. I did not realise. Why should you? Hugh replied sardonically, well acquainted with persons of her type. Turning to Lady Hartwood, he said, You have done an excellent job, ma'am, in turning the house into a home. It is now filled with a warmth and beauty it lacked before. Thank you, but I can't allow you to think I had anything to do in the matter, she replied, looking over at April with pride. My daughter knew exactly how she wanted to decorate the rooms with flowers and candles. Why, she must have bought all the stock in Covent Garden this morning. The hackney coach that brought her home was full to bursting. She gestured around the room, and everyone turned to admire the dozens of flower arrangements that had been placed about in crystal containers of every shape and size. And the Chandler was so pleased with the order she placed, continued her ladyship laughing. He arrived on our doorstep with a posy of violets and insisted on giving it to her in person. April was uncomfortably aware that it had been herself and not her order that had inspired the Chandler. Mamma, surely the minutiae of my day can be of no interest to our guests, she said lightly. You undertook to visit the Covent Garden Market yourself? asked Miss Beechcroft, eyebrows raising halfway up her forehead to convey her excessive surprise. Yes, replied April, and what is more, I enjoyed myself immensely. How peculiar, said Miss Beechcroft. 
It is perfectly respectable for a lady accompanied by her footman to venture out to Covent Garden during the day, he remarked. His casual defence of her brought a blush to April's cheeks as Miss Beechcroft's barbs had been quite unable to do. I consider myself something of a connoisseur of flower arrangements, said the Duke, smoothly moving on the conversation. And yours, Miss Hartwood, are particularly well done. It is evident you have an artistic flair that you have been hiding from us. How right you are, Your Grace, agreed Miss Starling. Thank you both, April laughed, but I doubt my small efforts warrant such high praise. You are being too modest, said His Grace. Then, casting a sly glance at Hugh, he went on, But even without these efforts, Mr. Royce's sentiment holds true. Your warmth and beauty pervade your home. As Hugh had meant nothing of the sort, he regarded the young Duke with marked displeasure. April was irritated by the comment as well, and feared Miss Starling was bound to have taken offence. This was proven to be not the case, however, for in the next moment she gushed, Oh yes, indeed, Your Grace, such warmth and beauty! April had to resist the urge to roll her eyes. End of chapter 21